You know, I have to tell you, just on a personal level, uh, this week I've been listening to some Christmas music, and there's some beautiful Christian music uh, for the holidays. I mean, you can rock around the clock and all that, but there's some beautiful uh, worship music, like we sang today, Joy to the World, and some of them are, are remakes of old classics, but you know what? Something's happened this week, as I've listened, um, it's really moved me deeply, that we are so blessed to have this story that, that, that has changed our lives. And it's grabbed me this week like, like never before. Like, man, I find myself listening to those songs and just start, start weeping, get teary-eyed. That, that, that story changed my life when I was a young kid and continues to impact my life. And I watch it change lives more than anything else. And friends, we are so blessed to have access to so much stuff, to have services, to have uh, music, to have Bibles. Like, man, God's, God's made it so easy for us to fall in love with them. And so I hope this week that you don't get so overwhelmed by all the busyness of the holidays, but take time just to, just to listen. And maybe put on some great um, Christmas music, really good worship Christmas music, and have your heart put in such a beautiful place. Uh, we've been talking this, uh, this past month about a, a word used in the Old Testament about a promised Messiah to come. The book of Isaiah, chapter 7, verse 14, says the woman, the virgin, will be with child, and he shall be called Emmanuel. And so when the angel comes to Joseph, when his wife is pregnant, he assures Joseph that the child inside your fiance is the promised one. And he will be called Jesus for he will, uh, he, will, he will forgive people of their sins and he will be Emmanuel, God with us. That is Emmanuel in your fiance's womb. And, and Emmanuel means God with us. It's the incarnation, the miracle, this incredible story of the invisible, uncontainable, endless, all-powerful, all-knowing God wrapping himself in human skin so that people could see and understand God in a, in a way they never could before. And that Jesus could become the mediator, the sacrifice to bridge that gap that sin caused between us and God. And we'll talk about that Christmas Eve. But Jesus promised that he would be with us. And when he left this earth and went to heaven, he sent his Holy Spirit to dwell inside his followers to assure us that he is still with us no matter what happens. And I know sometimes we wonder, God, are you really with me at this time? We talked about the storms of life and how sometimes things are so chaotic and crazy and it just feels like, God, where are you? Where have you been? I'm going through the storm and I can't see you. But we learned in that story that sometimes God steps back and allows our faith to grow to trust him even more in the midst of the storms. Last week, we talked about this great commission, this, this assignment God has given us that comes with the promise. See, he called us all to go and make disciples of all nations, baptize and teach them everything he's commanded us. And then he makes his promise, and I will be with you always. I'll encourage you. I'll empower you. I'll make you effective in that. I will be with you until the end of the age. Well, I want to talk to you today about something that I think is very close to the, to the heart of where many of us are, uh, that God is with us in the valleys, the places where the darkness seems to creep in. And I'd have to say over the last couple of years, there's been a lot of that. In fact, I would say that some of you have watched these past months and just feel like, God, there's just so much death and, and so much tragedy in this world and in my life, and how am I gonna get through this, and where are you in the midst of this? See, we like being on the mountaintops. Of course, Colorado people like that. We like to be on the mountains because you have a great view when you're on the mountains. Catherine Lee Bates wrote the, 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 the words to America the Beautiful on the top of Pikes Peak, this unhindered, majestic view of the landscape. Incidentally, did you know that the name of that song, the first title of that song, was called Pike's Peak? Pike's Peak. I don't know if the nation would sing that, would want to sing Pike's Peak, but they're going to sing America the Beautiful. But see, 
Mountains have a power in our lives because it feels like a triumph when we get there. When I turned 50, one of my bucket list goals was to climb Pike's Peak. Just take a day and hike up and hike back down Pike's Peak. And so a group from the church joined me and we hiked and got to the top and it was wonderful being up there and, and looking there. But I noticed that except for that shop that's up there, nobody lives on the top of Pike's Peak. In fact, there's not much up there. It's pretty barren. Things grow in the valleys. Life has lived in the valleys. It's lush in the valleys. That's where the animals roam. That's where the water descends, where rivers flow and ponds gather the water. Life happens in the valleys. And though we prefer to be on the mountains oftentimes because it feels like we sense God's presence there more, God is with us just as much in the valleys. And, And the ironic thing is sometimes you can go from a mountain to a valley just like that. I experienced that in the year 2000. It was, it was August. And the staff at the church, we were in our old building on Aspen Drive. We'd gather at the church. We left to go up to Woodman Valley Chapel to be part of an event called the Leadership Summit. Now, even the name, Summit, Mountaintop Experience. And it really was. We learned how to be effective as a church team, how to do ministry. We were greatly encouraged. I love those kind of events. And that was on Thursday. We, we had one more day on Friday to go back. And I was on, on on the top of the mountain. So I went home that night, we had dinner. I think we had some friends over in a house that night and I received a phone call from my younger sister, Joan. I'm the fourth of six kids. Uh, Joan is number six. And the first three children of my si- uh, that are siblings were born about four years apart. But the last three were kind of bunched together. It was me, uh, my sister, Barb, who was um, born a year and a half after me. And then a year after Barbara was, was my sister, Joan. And so the three of us, me and my two younger sisters grew up together, uh, did chores together, went to school together, went to youth group together, played together, just did a lot of things together. Well, I get a phone call from a younger sister, Joan, says, Barb's been in an accident. And you know where your head starts to race? Like, what, what do you mean, accident? See, uh, my sister Barb lived in Minnesota with their husband, Todd. They have a set of twins, just like my younger sister has a set of twin boys, born just months apart, by the way. And so they're very close and shared that in common. And, and so Barbara and Todd were leaving Minnesota to drive to Wisconsin to drop their three little children off at the in-laws so they could go camping with a bunch of high school friends. But before they got out of the state of Minnesota, a drunk driver had come down the highway and, and had been out drinking. It was early in the morning. It's only like middle of the morning, but he'd been drinking already, turned the wrong way on a divided highway. And by the time they became aware of it, they were behind a vehicle in the passing lane. That vehicle quickly darted to the right leaving them right in the, in the focus of this oncoming car. They collided 65 miles an hour head on. Todd, my brother-in-law, suffered multiple broken bones. The twin that was behind him, his little two-year-old, was protected by the seed, didn't have any scratches at all. But the one that was in the middle uh, bent over so sharply that his neck broke and he's been paralyzed since then. Uh, the other little guy that was behind my sister suffered major head trauma that he had to have a part of his, his brain removed and, and actually skull cap removed and was, uh, was handicapped the rest of his life until he passed away two years ago. My sister, she took the brunt of the accident. The engine got pushed into her and she bled to death. The comforting thing was there was a nurse leaving the Mayo Clinic that morning. She drove by, saw the accident happen, pulled over. There's nothing she could do except hold my sister's hand and, uh, and watch her bleed to death. While the ambulance was still arri- arriving, uh, she, said, she said, your sister had one final thing she said, take care of my babies. Mountaintop to the valley. Sometimes that happens in life. Sometimes you've been there. It's not just me, but you've been there. 
Pastor Rick and I have been involved in a funeral almost every week for the past two months. I mean, death has invaded our culture in a very big way. And that's why I want us to turn to a source that I think is one of the most powerful sources to get us through the dark valleys. And it's something that you all have heard before and probably heard a number of times, maybe even memorized. It's the 23rd Psalm. It's a psalm written by a man who was a king. But before he was a king, way before he ever took the throne of the nation of Israel, he was a shepherd boy. And in this 23rd Psalm, David lays out how God has been a shepherd to him. And I want you to know that Jesus is present in the darkest moments of our lives. He is indeed present in the darkest moments of our lives. And you're gonna see that so clearly in this psalm today. Now, you may, you may follow along in your head as I read this because you may know it in the King James Version, but I'm gonna read it in the English Standard Version. It goes like this. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. My prayer for you is that when you go through that dark valley in your life, if you're not there right now, there will come a time when you will that you'll know the good shepherd is with you. His name is Jesus. And we know he's with us in a number of different ways. So I wanna share with you four ways in which the shepherd makes himself uh, tangible, real in our lives. And the first way is this, the shepherd knows you intimately. David could have picked a number of titles for God in this psalm. He does in other psalms, uh, he's, the Lord is my rock and my fortress. He's my refuge. He's my shield and my buckler. He's my salvation and my king. But here he says he is my shepherd. There's something so intimate about that that David's trying to communicate, that he, he knows me like a shepherd knows his sheep. There's a special bond between shepherd and sheep that I think is unlike a bond between any other uh, person and their creatures. Now, there are, there are bonds between you and animals. I know a lot of you have cats and dogs and other animals. Uh, my wife, for years, had horses. And, and she bonded with, with horses. And there's a connection there. But I would say with so many other animals, they are fairly independent. In fact, uh, in Colorado, there's four designated areas where horses can roam free. There's wild. They, can live. They, don't, they don't need a shepherd. They don't need someone to oversee them. They can sustain themselves in the wild, but not sheep. Do you know what, you know what the nickname for sheep who live in the wild is? What do you call a sheep in the wild? Lunch or dinner. That's what they are. They're just prey. They're not going to survive. They can't. They need help. And it's ironic that when God chooses an animal to kind of be the mascot of humanity, it's sheep. Sheep. Because they are so dependent. Honestly, it's not very flattering when you think about it. I mean, think of all the sports teams that choose a mascot. Grizzlies. The bears. The lions, the falcons, the eagles. The Wolverines, the Badgers. What team calls themselves the Lambs? You know, mattress companies use them as mascots, but not sports teams. You know, sheep are so helpless. And I hate to say, but they're kind of dumb. In 2005, this is a true story that happened in, in Turkey. Some sheep herders had gathered together with their large herds. And while they were there, one of the sheep got over to the edge of a cliff and fell over. And it proceeded that every other sheep that was there 
went over the ledge of that cliff as well. All 1,100 of them. Bad news is 400 of them died. The good news is those 400 cushioned the fall of the other 700 <laughs> with their big woolly, woolly bodies that they survived. But that's what sheep, sheep do. Like, oh, let's, I guess if you're going to do it, I'm going to do it. And your parents probably have used that as a story sometime. Uh, of friends who do st- dumb things. Don't just follow them because they'll jump over a cliff and you will too. So here the lambs are, are not smart. They're very dependent on shepherds. We need a shepherd to be the overseer of our souls, of our lives, to guide us through. Others may pretend to love the sheep, but they actually take advantage of them. Jesus warned us saying, there's some out there and they're thieves who seek to kill, steal, and destroy. But then Jesus in John chapter 10 says this, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. I know them. They know me. We have a relationship. There's a relationship between the sheep and the shepherd. He knows us intimately. He knows the feelings, the thoughts, the convictions, the fears. He knows all of that and we know him. We know his patterns. We know his character. We know his strength. We know God. God knows us. Some of us in our Bible reading plan read Psalm 139 this week, a great psalm. And that psalm begins like this. David writes that psalm as well. Oh Lord, you've searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, oh Lord, you know it completely. Most of us, when we go through traumatic times, when our, when our emotions are high, we hold them close. We, we say, I'm not going to share what I'm really thinking about with anybody. I'm not going to open up my heart to anybody. Why? I don't feel safe. I can't be vulnerable with those people. I don't know what they'll do with that intimate knowledge of me. But see, God knows everything that's going on inside of you already. Even before you express, he said, before words on your mouth, before the words come out, he knows it. He knows what you're thinking. And he loves you. Isn't that amazing? He knows all the distorted, sometimes false, sometimes ugly things going on inside of us. And yet he says, I'm there. I know you. I know you completely. And I love you. There's not a place that you can go to hide from me. That psalm goes on. It's such a beautiful psalm. It says there's, there's not a place you can escape to that God won't find you. Not that he's out uh, to attack us or to hound us. He's there because he's a shepherd who follows his sheep. David says in that psalm, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And that before we ever lived a day on this earth, he knew it completely. It says in that psalm that, that his thoughts toward us are precious and more numerous than sands on the, on the shore. Think about that. That God's thoughts toward you are more than the grains of sand on the earth. I cannot even fathom that. God, who am I? Who? Man, there's more famous people. There's better people you think of, but you think of me, yes, because you're made in his image, fearfully, wonderfully made. He loves you. He knows you. Why would you want anybody else to be your shepherd? Jesus is the perfect shepherd. He's the good shepherd. And as David says so confidently, he's my shepherd. He's just not the good shepherd out there. He's, that's my shepherd You're talking about my shepherd. See, there's something assuring when you go through challenges of life saying, Jesus is my shepherd. He's going to get me through this. And I just wonder if you've ever made him your shepherd. Because he doesn't corral sheep and say, I'm going to force you to be my sheep. You better follow me. He invites us to be part of the flock. 
He invites us to walk with him, let him lead us. Is he leading you? Are you following? If not, why? What are you waiting for? Because I guarantee you, you will go through times in your life when it'll see, feel so tough, so dark, you'll feel so beaten down, or you'll wander so far off course, you'll say, hey, I need a shepherd. I can't do this alone. And God says, I've been waiting for you to reach that point. We just have to quickly acknowledge that we are sheep in need of a shepherd. And he knows us, and we can know him. Second thing David says in here is the shepherd cares for you tenderly. Share, cares for you tenderly. You know, when I first heard this psalm when I was a little boy, I, it didn't make sense to me because David was saying, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Like, why wouldn't you want your shepherd? Why, why, if the Lord's your shepherd, why don't you want him? And that's not what David was saying. He was basically saying, the Lord is my shepherd, I have no wants. Why? Because he satisfies them. He meets my needs. He gives me all that I need. The Apostle Paul reminds us of this in Philippians chapter 4, verse 19. And my God shall supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. When you have Jesus, you have the supplier that can meet every need that you have. If you have Jesus, you have enough. In fact, there was a man uh, at Thanksgiving was saying prayer, and his prayer actually became a question. He said, all this in Jesus? All this plus Jesus? Wow, I am rich. Because when you have Jesus, you have enough grace for every sin, enough wisdom for every problem, enough strength for every challenge, enough presence for every moment of loneliness. You have all that you need. Now, Jesus doesn't promise to be Santa Claus and give us everything that's on our Christmas list, everything we wish for. Wishes are different than needs. He knows what we need. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, my father feeds the sparrows. The birds never worry. They don't fret. How much more does he care for you who are his children? He knows what you need even before you ask him. He'll take care of you. You know, uh, recently, Steve Shrive was a big Tampa Bay Buccaneer fan, ordered a ornament. It says right here, Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Yeah, he opened it up and uh, God knew what he needed. There's Green Bay Packer bobblehead in there. Steve, listen to the Lord, okay? Listen to the Lord. See, <laughs> God knows what we need. And sometimes in the process of giving us what we need, we, well, we didn't really want what we needed. Like, like what, if, what if God says what you really need is to be more patient? What you really need is some more courage. What you really need is to be more generous. What you really need right now is to be more forgiving. And you go, oh, God, I really don't want that right now. And God says, no, you need it. And sometimes the way God gives it to us can be difficult. In fact, I saw for the first time something in this passage that I think is really cool. Uh, in the book of James, the first chapter, it says this, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The, the pathway to lack nothing oftentimes requires the testing of your faith to give us what we're lacking. And we go, oh God, I didn't, I didn't want it to hurt so bad to get what I needed, but God says, you needed something, but I had to bring you through a tough time to get what you really needed. May not have wanted it, but you needed it. See, God knows 
what we need. There was a man, uh, survived one of these big financial crashes. He was just almost suicidal though. He went to his pastor and said, pastor, I've lost everything. I don't know what I'm gonna do, I've lost everything. And the pastor said, okay, just stop for a minute. Did you lose the love of your family? He said, no, they still love me. Said, did you lose your character in the process? He goes, no, I've, I've been honest and, and, and holding on to my character. How about your faith? Did you lose your faith in the midst of this? He goes, no, no, I still have my faith. In fact, that's about all that I have. He said, have you lost your salvation? He goes, no, no, I'm secure in my relationship with the Lord. The pastor said, well, it sounds to me that whatever you lost wasn't that important because you still have the most important things. Jesus is the most important thing. And when he's in our lives, we have everything we need. And then he provides in ways to meet those needs. For example, as, as David go through the, goes through the psalm, he shows different ways that God meets the needs. The need for rest and restoration. He says, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. You know, I don't get physically tired a whole lot, but I'll tell you this, especially in the last couple of years, there are days when I felt emotionally depleted. Just, just emotionally wiped out. I think that's worse than physical depletion. Because, if, you know, when you're physically depleted, you just go take a nap or eat some food, take a shower. But emotionally, like, where do I turn? But you know where I found you turn? I found those times in the morning, quiet times with the Lord. It's like drinking from a deep well. Time in prayer, time in reading God's word and reflecting has renewed my spirit. God wants to give you rest and restoration. He wants to give direction. It says he leads me in paths of righteousness, righteousness for his name's sake. Sheep don't know where to go to find the food or to find shelter, to find safety. They don't know where to go. The shepherd does. The shepherd, the shepherd knows the lay of the land. The shepherd's gone ahead of them to look it out, to scout it out. He knows where the green pastures are. He knows where the sources of water are. God is like that for us. You don't know where to go, but he does. And he can lead you to the right place if you listen, Jesus said in John 10, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. Are you listening to his voice? Because he wants to lead. He's always ready to speak, but are we always prepared to listen? Sheep follow the shepherd. There's a need for companionship. He says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. You know, there are so many times that, that we struggle in life, but I can't think of anything that's more dark than times of death. I mean, I think about the, the shootings up in Michigan recently and all that those families are going through. And then, uh, then the families in the Midwest that were ravaged by the tornadoes and what they're dealing with and the loss of, of 100 plus lives. I mean, all the pain, all the stories within our own congregation this year, in fact, especially in recent months of even young people dying, cancer and COVID and things. It's, it's heartbreaking, it's devastating. But David gives an interesting title to this valley. He calls it the valley of the shadow of death. When I think of shadows, what I think of is the other day I saw a shadow and I jumped and it wasn't real. I mean, shadows can't hurt you, can they? Neither can death if you know Jesus. It's like a shadow. It may look intimidating. It may look frightening. But Jesus has changed the whole meaning of death. Death, death does not become final. Death, death for the believer is a doorway into eternity, into God's presence forever. And so we look at the future in a much different way because death has been defeated by Jesus. How do you get rid of a shadow? Bring the light in. 
How do you get rid of the darkness caused by the shadow of death? Bring the light of Christ in, the truth of Scripture, the presence of Jesus. It will cast out the darkness that has crept in. Many of you know last week I'd shared uh, that Jacob Donato, who used to be on our staff, the son of our former worship pastor, Frank Donato, had contracted a strange form of COVID that affected his nervous system, and uh, he wasn't responding well at all. And uh, last Sunday afternoon, he actually passed away. 35 years old, four young children, beautiful wife. And I, and I thought, I can't imagine going through Christmas now. And yet Frank, God bless him. He's a pastor, and there's a reason he's a pastor, because of his strong faith in the Lord. And he wrote a message that he put out on Facebook, sent to, sent to a bunch of us electronically on our phones. And part of that message, he wrote this. He said, we prayed for a miracle for Jake, and in God's providence, he is giving miracles to several families this Christmas season because Jake signed up to be a donor. His earthly body is being used to touch dozens and dozens of people, changing their lives forever. While we are shattered with grief, we are not without hope. Our faith in Jesus is strong. Our family leans in, holding one another up at just the right time and in just the right way to keep moving forward, one breath after another. We are experiencing a peace from God that we cannot explain. Catch that. We are experiencing a peace from God that we cannot explain. And I know what that's like because when my mother passed away, I always, I just, in my head, says, I'm just going to be a basket case. And I'm not a real emotional person, but my mom's very special. And I said, if, when she dies, that moment comes, I'm afraid of what'll, what'll happen. And what happened was, I was overwhelmed with peace. That she had finished her race and she was in glory with heaven. And I said, I can't, I can't, I can't grieve very much over this because I'm, I'm filled with this amazing peace and joy that I can't explain. And in Philippians chapter four, it says to cast your cares on him and to pray to the Lord when you're feeling anxious thoughts and the peace of God which transcends our understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. There truly is a miraculous kind of peace that can overcome you when Jesus is your shepherd. Because God never promises for believers that we won't go through the dark places. He never says, you accept me, I'll keep you from the canyons. I'll keep you from the dark valleys. No, David says, through through the valley. You cannot get to the mountain if you don't go through the valley. And he brings us through the valley. But here's the difference between a believer and unbeliever. We don't go alone. He is with us. One other need he highlights here is the need of protection and correction. He says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now, what are those two instruments for? Well, they can be used for a number of different things, but the rod typically was a firm piece of wood that was whittled down to where there was a knob on the end of it. A knob that could be used to strike a predator. Sometimes they'd use it actually as a weapon to throw. And if it'd strike a, a creature, it would take off running. So it was used to defense. It was used to protect. The, the staff, however, was a longer stick with a curved top, a crook on it. And when a sheep would get stuck in a crevice or start to stray, they could actually loop it around the neck and gently pull the sheep to safety to redirect it. Protection and correction. Sometimes the way God protects us is by correcting us. Sometimes God says, hey, I need to keep you from going into a dangerous place, and so I'm gonna discipline you in a way or redirect your path, and it may, may even be painful, but I'm, but I'm protecting you from yourself. But he does it because he loves us. Hebrews chapter 12, six says, the Lord disciplines the one he loves. So he meets. Those are just examples of a lot of the needs the Lord meets in our lives. David goes on to say the shepherd defends you and he defends you fiercely, fiercely. 
It says he sets a table before him in the presence of his enemies. He's in the presence of his enemies, and yet he's in the presence of the Lord. And because he's in the presence of the Lord, he doesn't fear being in the presence of his enemies. And enemies surround him. David was always under attack. And kings all through um, history in those areas always had to look out for someone else coming up behind them to take them down, even within their own family. David knew there were enemies, even among his people who were out after him. But like, like lambs, lambs cannot defend themselves They don't have sharp teeth, they don't have claws, they don't have a beak. I mean, they have nothing they can use to fight with. They absolutely require a shepherd to fight for them. And Jesus says, I'll be that shepherd who fights for you. Now, who are the enemies that surround us? Well, Scripture identifies a number of different enemies. One, they're enemies of the gospel. They're those who oppose what you're doing for the Lord. And they're identified as enemies of the gospel. And they will be there and they will try to discourage you. There's another enemy, I would say a a more feared enemy, it's called death. Death is called an enemy. And it is a defeated enemy. Up until the time of Jesus, death was undefeated. Everyone who was born died, except for a couple rare people like Enoch, who who God uh, escorted into heaven. Elijah, fiery chariot, took him. But everyone else who lived died. But then Jesus comes along. And Jesus took the brunt of sin upon his shoulders, died, but didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead to show that he had victory over death. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? It's gone because of Jesus and his triumph in the cross. That's why we don't fear death anymore. Is death an enemy? Yes, because God didn't intend for us to die, but it's a defeated enemy. We don't have to fear death. See, for so long, death had this grip on people. Because people knew that one day we're going to die, and then what? We don't know what. We don't know what's after death. It says in the book of Hebrews, second chapter, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, that's Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Satan used the fear of death to hold people in bondage. And you can go into other parts of the world and look at some of the religious systems and see the bondage of people who are trying to do things to avert the sting of death. But it's only through faith in Christ that we really overcome it. When Jesus uh, confronted Satan, one time he called them by this name. He says, you are Beelzebub, the, the prince of demons. Now that name is an interesting name. You guys have heard the name, right? Yeah. Bohemian Rhapsody? It's right in there? Yeah. It's also in the Gospels where Jesus calls him Beelzebub, which is a form of Baal. Beel is Baal. Zebub uh, as a reference to flies and insects, flying insects. The name Beelzebub in, in the Philistine culture was Philistines are one of the enemies of the Israelites. Beelzebub was one of their gods. He was the Lord of the flies. Lord of the flies. Now, why am I bringing that up? Because... One of the phrases in this psalm that's kind of puzzling is, he, anoint, he anoints my head with oil, my cup overflows. Like, what, what is cool about having a cup of, 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 of oil poured over your head? That, doesn't, that sounds kind of gross to me. I mean, greasy oil, I don't want oil on my head. But again, think like a sheep. One of the greatest nuisances to sheep were flies, and the manure and the dirt and stuff attracted flies. Flies would get in their eyes. Flies would get in their nose and just torment them. And even from having horses, we saw that. that how, how little bitty flies can torment a big horse. 
And Julia would go down to Big R and, and buy some horse spray or fly spray and spray the back of the horse to keep the flies away. Now, they didn't have Big R in Jesus' day. So what did they do? They used oil. And they put oil over the head and especially over the, ne- the, the mouth and the nose of the, of the sheep so the flies wouldn't bother them. Now, think about this. What's the reference to believers then? How does God anoint us with oil? Well, one of the the visuals for the the gift of the Holy Spirit is that we've been anointed with the Holy Spirit. Sometimes the Holy Spirit's even compared to oil. And and in 1 John 2, verse 27, it says, but the anointing that you have received from him abides in you, lives in you. It's speaking of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the anointing that God has given you to protect you from the works of the enemy. Of, of the devil. So yes, are there demons? Are they, they're like flies that are buzzing around, but God has given you protection through the presence of the Holy Spirit. He anoints my head with oil. And what are we called to do to be filled with the Spirit? You can be so full, your cup runs over. Here's what else the shepherd does for you. One last thing. The shepherd will welcome you eternally. He says, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This speaks of the future, and the future in two different ways. One is a look backwards and one is a look forward. So, so the look backwards is kind of like looking in the rear view mirror. It says you can stop at a point in your life and look backwards and you will see that there is a trail of goodness and mercy that's followed you all the days of your life. That even in those times where you thought they were hard times and difficult times, you can say like, God, actually you were very good to me during that. That I can see the good you brought out of it. Goodness has continually been a theme in my life. Goodness and mercy And then he says something in the future. It's like he's looking out through the windshield and there's coming a day when I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now that house has two different meanings. It can mean a physical, literal physical house or sometimes that word's used to speak of household. Like the household of God, meaning the family of God. And they're both true. There's a place in God's family, in God's presence, in God's house where we are destined to live forever. I mean, that's what Jesus talked about um, the night he gathered his disciples in the upper room with the Last Supper. John chapter 14, he said, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And whenever um, company is coming to our house, you know, someone's going to come and stay a few days with us. You know, we, we, we do something abnormal. You know, we clean the house extra good, make sure everything has fresh towels, fresh sheets, uh, put food, extra food in the refrigerator, you know, make sure we have all the things because we want our guests to feel welcome. So think about this. Jesus said, hey guys, I've, I'm, I'm getting ready for you. I've gone up ahead and I'm getting ready for you. I'm getting, getting it all ready. So when you come up, you're going to know this is where we want you to stay. Jesus, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Not only that, it says, I'll come escort you there. I'm going to come again and take you to be where I am. Now, that could happen while we're alive. You know, God could rapture us up, take us to heaven. But it's very likely that we'll die first. What happens when you die? How does he do that? I don't know. I just know this. The apostle Paul said to be absent from the body is to be present with who? The Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. I don't know if Jesus personally comes But I do know that when I die, I'm going to be with Jesus either way. I will be with the Lord. And I get to dwell in the presence of his family forever. He truly is 
the good shepherd. He's with us now in kind of a mystical way. You can't see him, but you trust him. And then one day we will see him face to face. And that's where we'll stay for the rest of eternity. No one is as good to us as Jesus. There is none other that offers us what the good shepherd offers us. Dr. Charles Allen was a Methodist pastor. One day a man came to him very distraught, a lot of chaos in his life, going through some very difficult times. And uh, he asked the pastor to help him. The pastor said, you know, if you'd go to the physician and you had a physical ailment, he would write you a prescription. So I'm gonna write you a prescription. Here's what it is. And you need to be very disciplined to do this every single day. For the next week, five times a day, I want you to read the 23rd Psalm. Read it when you wake up, before each of your three meals, and read it again before you go to bed. Do that every day for the next seven days. Well, a week later, the man comes back to see the pastor. He was radiant. He was at peace. He said, pastor, says the prescription worked. Uh, It does good to saturate ourselves with the word of God, to be reminded of these truths that Jesus really is a shepherd. When we have him, we have all that we need.